Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So I'm going to start today's episode with, you know, admitting something that I'm a little embarrassed about. Yeah, what's that? (laughs) Well, I myself, a pediatrician, have made a medication error error with my own daughter. I was completely sleep deprived. I think it was after her four month well child check where she had just gotten her vaccinations and she was a little fussy and she had a little fever. And I think I just told my husband, oh, just give her five mLs of Tylenol and it'll be fine. And then later I was like, oh, shoot, she should have gotten 2.5 mLs. Mm -hmm. And I mistakenly did some quick mental math, you know, just always being like, oh, they get, you know, 15 milligrams per kilogram, 15 milligrams per kilogram. We learned that it's like burned into us as pediatricians. And I was just thinking, oh, you know, of her weight that day that they gave me at the appointment in pounds, (laughs) not Uh kilograms. And I mean, you know, it's like half. Mm -hmm. Right. So her pound and kilograms would have been half of her weight in pounds. And that's why I gave her double the medication she was supposed to get. So what I'm saying is this can happen to anyone, even pediatricians. Tripped up by the metric system again. (laughs) It got me. It got Uh me. I can trump that because, you know, I, I did a medication error for myself. And, you know, I was taking an allergy medication just over the counter for seasonal allergies. And the one I was taking was twice a day. And then I switched to a different one because it seemed to work better. So I'm taking it twice a day. And it seems to be working really, really well. But I was getting sleepier and sleepier. And I finally looked at the dosing. And the new one was just once a day. But I didn't even read the label. (laughs) I mean, yes, I think this highlights that. I think it's happened to everyone. Um, So common. And that's why we're so thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Olfat Sheikh. Dr. Sheikh is a general pediatrician at UC Davis and the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Quality Improvement and Patient Safety. Patient safety, that's what it's all about with giving medications. And so she is going to share some tips about why medication errors happen and how we can work to reduce the risk of a medication error occurring at home. Dr. Sheikh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Lena and Dr. Dean for inviting me here today to talk about this important topic. It's so great to be here. Mm -hmm. Do you have your own medication error story? Oh my goodness, I I can't even begin. So uh, maybe we just move on. <laughs> <laughs> good good answer. Yeah, yeah, very good answer. So I I wonder, are there certain people or groups that are more at risk for these errors? I think we've established that it can happen to anyone, but are there any certain groups that you think about this happening more frequently? Yeah, yeah. So the specific discussion today is going to focus on kids who are at home. So medication errors in children who are at home, so not admitted to the hospital, are actually more common than people think. And they're actually a public health issue. So about one child every eight minutes experiences a home medication error that could lead to medical symptoms. So there are about 200,000 out-of-hospital medication errors in children reported each year to poison control centers in the United States. And when you look at what these uh, errors 
comprise of. So the most common kind of thing we see involves giving the child the wrong medication or when kids are given the wrong dose, such as Dr. Lena, you mentioned your own experience at the beginning of the episode. And we see problems with kids taking medicines that they have known allergies to by mistake, missing doses of meds, doubling up on a dose, taking meds for more days than they need to, taking a medication by a different route than was prescribed, such as swallowing a medicine that was actually supposed to be applied on the skin, using a medication that has expired. So as you see, there's so many ways kids could run into problems with medication errors at home. I'm thinking that probably the medications where the errors occur most commonly are the medications that we use most commonly. Is that, is that true? Yeah, so uh, medications that are used to treat fever and colds are the ones that we see people getting into trouble with. Yeah, I mean, those are the ones that are like like just so commonly used is the, you know, the, the Tylenol, the Motrin and, and medications for colds. Yeah. yeah, and when you're thinking about the common medications that result in errors, so in a home setting, of course, there's the issue with overdose. So we discussed fever and pain and cold medications, but we should also talk about underdosing, right? So the most frequently underdosed medications are those used to treat seizures. And a lot of that actually happens when instructions that we as clinicians give parents or caregivers that are a bit unclear or sort of in a different style of uh, of learning. Um, and so we're going to talk about that in more detail, I hope, is just sort of the congruence and communication. Yeah, absolutely. So why are these liquid medications so uniquely challenging and more prone to errors as opposed to like taking a, a tablet? Yeah, so that's a really important question. So more than 80% of pediatric home medication errors have to do with liquid medications. And one reason for this is many parents and caregivers use a household spoon to measure out medications. And these spoons, if you just look in your kitchen drawer, you'll see that these spoons can vary widely in their size and shape. So a teaspoon is usually considered to be 5 ml. But kitchen teaspoons, if you look at them, can actually vary in size from between 2 ml and 10 ml. So the safe thing to do is to use a standard dosing tool, such as an oral syringe to measure out liquid medication. And actually, it's best to use the dosing tool that comes with the medication or the one the pharmacist gives you. Uh, the other issue we see with liquid medications, because there are quite a few, are those um, that even those with the same brand name are actually available in different infant and children's strengths. So for some medications, the infant medicine may be stronger. So it's more concentrated than the children's medication because infants generally can't drink a large quantity of medicine. So their medicine is actually made more, more strong. Now, parents can make a mistake of giving a higher dose of the infant medication to a toddler thinking that it's not as strong. So be careful about and check if the medicine you give your child is right for their weight and age. And then finally, another issue is the many different words for units of measurement of liquid medicines that are out there. So people out there use terms like milliliter, teaspoon, tablespoon. And then on top of that, they sometimes use the abbreviations for those terms instead of the whole term. So you end up with parents trying to distinguish what's a TSP from a TBSP at 2 a.m. in a dimly lit bedroom. So a tablespoon has three times as much medicine as a teaspoon, and this can be so confusing to try to figure out, especially when you have the added stress of having a sick, sick child at home to take care of. Now imagine on top of that, you have more than one caregiver or parent trying to give the kid their meds, or if the child takes multiple medications at different times of the day. So as you see, that's quite a recipe for trouble. 
Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, I think about me trying to make cookies this weekend and differentiate between the teaspoon and tablespoon. So, no, that is such a good point. I think that one thing I took away from you discussing this is just like get rid of those teaspoon, tablespoon. Don't use your household, you know, utensils as measuring medication, but make sure you have that standard syringe that the pharmacist gives. That's a great, great point. And, and yet, you know, a hundred years ago when I was in training, it was all teaspoons and tablespoons. We didn't have the syringes. We didn't give them to, to parents, to patients. We, you know, for otitis media, it was like we'd round off to the nearest teaspoon of amoxicillin for, for kids. Um, we'd always do that. So this is an advance during my lifetime to really change over to more accurate measurements of, of the syringe, the milliliters. So um, what about over-the-counter medications? We think of these as safer because they're over-the-counter. You don't need a prescription, so they can't be that toxic, right? What, what about errors with these medications? Yeah, so you'll be surprised, Dr. Dean, there are some over-the-counter medications that have the potential for real harm. So for example, kids under four years of age should not be given cough and cold medicines that have a decongestant or an antihistamine because of the risk of dangerous side effects such as convulsions or rapid heart rates, the possibility of dosing errors that we just spoke about. Uh, so many cold medicines have acetaminophen, which is the same ingredient that's in fever medicines like Tylenol. So if you give one of those cough and cold medicines along with a fever medicine, your kid could end up getting a double dose. Uh, the other thing we need to be aware of is that medicines with salicylates should be avoided in children because of the risk of a rare but sometimes deadly condition called Rye syndrome that affects the brain and the liver. But salicylates are actually in several common over-the-counter medications that adults take, such as aspirin or bismuth subsalicylate, uh, the ingredient in Pepto-Bismol. So yeah, even with over-the-counter medications, there is opportunity for getting into trouble. I think that what you just said with combining some cold medications with acetaminophen or Tylenol, I had a family once that told me their their kid was sick. And we in pediatrics so commonly, I'm sure most parents have heard, like we say, OK, your kid has a fever, alternate acetaminophen and ibuprofen. So three, you can give one now, three hours later, you can give the other, three hours later, you can give the other. So you're not getting too much of one, but you're working to keep the fever down. And I remember the family came in and said, okay, we've been doing that. We're alternating Motrin and Advil every three hours. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's the same medication. Different brand so, names, right? Right, different brand names of ibuprofen. And so it's so easy there to see how that can go wrong. I wonder how you recommend that parents do this alternating practice that we talk about like safely. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at studies that look at alternating acetaminophen and ibuprofen, they actually show pretty mixed results. So this means that some studies found that alternating them works a bit better in controlling pain and fever than in using one medication alone. But then other studies showed no difference at all. So it's best in general to avoid alternating these medicines in children, especially in young children, because it does raise the likelihood of confusion and ending up with errors. So 
Acetaminophen is dosed every four hours. Ibuprofen is dosed every six hours. And as you mentioned, we try to like, you know, smoothen out that the, the, the curve by saying just take it every three hours. But then having a busy and stressed parent alternate these two medications um, unnecessarily complicates things in my mind and is just a setup for error. So because of the different dosing frequencies with these two medicines, the many types and formulations that you can see in stores, the potential for toxic effects on the kidney, especially if the child is really sick, dehydrated, has other medical problems. I generally advise parents to pick one of these medicines to treat their child fe- child's fever. And then Dr. Dean, of course, will tell us that fever is a body's normal response and it actually helps your body fight infection. So a child can have a fever for so many reasons, including the common cold. And we see many parents rush to give their kids medicines for fever because lots of people assume that a child should always have a normal temperature. Fevers at the usual level we see with infections, as we, all, as we know, um, and you've discussed on the show before, right, don't cause brain damage. Like really temperatures over 108 Fahrenheit can cause some brain damage. But like the only time we see the sort of temperature generally is unfortunately when a kid's left in a closed car during hot weather, right? So it's that sort of extreme scenario. So the main reason to give fever medicines is not to bring the child's temperature to normal, but to just make the child feel comfortable enough. So they drink their fluids, they rest. So just the bottom line is pick one medication, stick with it, um, and you know um, discuss with your clinician uh, if you're considering alternating based on the child's age and their medical condition. You took the words right out of my mouth. All right. You've convinced me. No more alternating. I'll just have people pick one of those medications. That sounds great. So I also see a lot of potential for errors with things like inhalers, right? This is really confusing. So just to kind of highlight for our listeners, if a child has asthma, especially if it's not very well controlled, sometimes we'll prescribe what's called a controller inhaler, which they take every day. And then there'll be a rescue inhaler, which they use just when they're having the symptoms, sort of on an as-needed basis. And sometimes people will come in and they're not really sure which one is which, or I'll ask them, okay, which one are you using every day? And they'll say like the red one. So I wonder um, if you have any tips for me or for parents on how they can better remember these, specifically these inhalers. Yeah, that's a good point. I've uh, seen as well families frequently confusing the rescue and maintenance inhalers. And as you said, this is uh, sort of it's really critical to keep them both apart and, and, and right, right? So rescue is short acting asthma medicines. They relax. They open the breathing tubes in the lungs if, if the child's breathing suddenly becomes difficult. And then maintenance, long acting inhalers, use them every day and they help prevent symptoms from coming on. But unfortunately, they don't work to treat sudden symptoms. So you can see why you may get into trouble if you confuse one with the other. And kids and even grown-ups can find it confusing to keep them straight because based on the company that makes them, both inhalers could actually end up being red, right? So to prevent this from happening, don't use color to identify the inhaler. If the inhalers look similar, ask your pharmacist to help you come up with a way to quickly identify the correct medicine, like a special label, or just bring your inhaler in to your next doctor's appointment. Ask your clinician, your physician to do that. If things are unclear, take your um, inhaler to the, either as, as I mentioned, the pharmacist or clinician's office. Anytime, ask for clarification. Try to learn the names of the medications uh, that, that are on the inhalers. And 
these days we're actually starting to see more use of smart or single inhaler maintenance and reliever therapy for children. This is used for kids whose current therapy is not controlling their asthma well. So this is a single inhalation device that has both the rescue and prevention medicine combined. So um, this, you know, is sort of obviously lower risk for confusing the two types of inhalers. So yeah, the bottom line is don't use color. Just try to use a label on there that says, uh, you know, for emergency for every day, uh, take your inhaler to your clinician's office, your pharmacy, if uh, you need further clarification. Yeah, that's a great idea. Some some parents all say like, yeah, literally just like write duct tape, you know, or painter's tape. And one says every day and one says only as needed. <laughs> um, but again, when you get a refill, then you have to do that all over again. So yeah, I think that's a good point. So we've reviewed some common medications that lead to errors, including the um, antipyretics to control fever, um, some of the combination medications, the inhalers. Let's take a closer look at how to prevent these from occurring in the first place, like the hint that we just talked about, about labeling these more clearly. What else can we as doctors, what can pharmacists do to reduce medication errors for medications that we prescribe or that we recommend for patients? Yeah, doctors and pharmacists can do a few things to help reduce home medication errors. So up to 80% of medical information that patients are given by us is actually forgotten immediately. And almost half of the information that's retained is incorrect. And one reason is our communication style as clinicians. So there's a communication technique that I'd love for clinicians and pharmacists to use with parents and caregivers, and it's called teach back. So this is gold, right? So listen carefully. It's called teach back. This is where you ask the the parent to teach back the information that you just communicated to them. It's key that this is not a test of the parent's knowledge, right? We're not doing a quiz here today. It's a test of how well you as a clinician explain the concept to them. So you could say something like, we covered a lot at today's visit. Uh, so just so I'm sure I explain Anna's medication correctly, can you tell me when and how much you're going to give her? Or you could say something like, your inhaler is important for your health. Can you show me how you would use it at home? So that's teach back. The second technique is to make sure you use plain language or non-medical terms. So use pictures or drawings to illustrate key points whenever you can. So I'm a really visual learner. So if you say stuff, stuff to me, I'm always, you know, when I go in for my kids' appointments, taking notes on my phone or I take a notepad with me. So I'm a visual learner. I sometimes like draw things out. Uh, I'll ask the clinician to draw stuff out. So try to counsel parents and caregivers um, in addition to trying to use um, pictures and drawings, try to counsel them in their preferred language or use a trained interpreter whenever you can. There's a few other things we can do, giving parents written patient education materials that are easy to understand, giving them a printed after-visit summary or one that's shared with them through the patient portal of their child's electronic medical records, such as my chart that we have here at UC Davis. The American Academy of Pediatrics uh, website has... Uh, uh, graphics for how to take fever medicines, cold medicines, how to measure out cups and syringes. So those are great resources. I can send you the links later. So if the child is on multiple medications at a time, try to simplify the regimen. So for example, you could reduce the number of times they need to take meds or have them take medications on the same schedule if possible. Um, then we already spoke about this, but it's so important to reinforce it for liquid medications. Use dosing units such as 
milliliters instead of teaspoons. Um, encourage parents to use a standardized dosing tool like a medication syringe with all their liquid medications. And then finally, uh, what we call medic, uh, medication reconciliation. Review all medications that the child is taking with their parent or can, caregiver at their office visit and make sure that your medical records reflect their medication names and doses correctly, whether they are prescription medicines or over-the-counter medicines. And a great resource for re- clinicians to learn more about this issue is the American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement that's called Preventing Home Medication Administration Errors. Yeah, and we will include that as well as the um, American Academy of Pediatrics tools for parents on our website that you mentioned. Obviously, we strive that all doctors will be able to implement some of these techniques, but you as the parent can also empower yourself to take those upon yourself, right? And so I love when parents at the end of the visit are like, okay, let me just review this with you one more time. So I'm going to give her five mLs twice a day for 10 days. Or like, let me just make sure that I heard you correctly. And this is what's going on. So you can like kind of force teach back on your doctor um, as well if they don't do it with you, which obviously we would like to get to that point. And, and the same goes, like, I love that you brought up interpreters because I think This is something that's so hard, especially you live in an area like Sacramento that's so incredibly diverse. One of the reasons I love practicing here. But I frequently am using interpreters with my patients, right? And I just imagine how hard that could be when I was reading your policy statement. I I saw that one example that was like, you could write something out as once daily. And like in Spanish, that's once, 11, right? And like, that must be so confusing. And so I just think, Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done here, but as much as we can, using interpreters, using pictures, like you said, like giving the syringe and actually marking on there exactly where they're going to fill that medication up to, especially in people who may not speak English, I think is is helpful. But the pictures, so much to do. Yeah, the pictures, you know, I, I think of them um, physical therapists. And as I get older, I seem to be seeing physical therapists <laughs> more and more often. But you know, they're so good. They give you that sheet that's printed and they sh- it shows you exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And then there's text saying like how many reps and all that. But it's super clear. Yeah, that is very helpful. We need to be doing more of that. And I, I wish there was like a, a standard graphic. Maybe Dr. Shake can help us work on this that like oh, is a picture you could put into the after visit summary and then you could like draw on the line like you know, it's a picture of a syringe and you draw on like five mLs or something like that. It's a great would be idea. really helpful, especially not for our English speakers. But okay, one thing to add to our to-do list team. So what if an error does occur, like happened to me and the parent realizes, oh, shoot, I gave the wrong dose or I gave them too close together or that wasn't the medication I was supposed to give. What are the next steps? Yeah, well, the first step is to look closely at your child. So if your child has mild symptoms, or no symptoms at all, call the poison help number, and that's 1-800-222-1222. So that's 1-800-222-1222. It's best to uh, add this number to your phone's contact list or post it somewhere that's visible in your home, like on your fridge, or some families have a family bulletin board. Um, You can also get 
advice online through the webpoisoncontrol.org website. So both of these options are free, they're confidential, they're from experts, well-trusted. But then, of course, if your child has severe symptoms, such as if they're unconscious, not breathing or having trouble breathing or having seizures, extremely, extremely drowsy, then, of course, call 911 or your local emergency number right away. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so a lot of it is common sense. If the kid's really symptomatic, you need, you need to get help. And it can be very difficult for parents to really know, is it a significant medication error or not? I'm thinking, Dr. Lena, you knew at the time that, you know, that's probably not going to result in any harm. And you'll just... Well, I was like, I guess I, I definitely need to skip, skip the next, the next dose, dose, right? Exactly, I yeah. mean, there's a, t- a, yeah, the total daily dose. But I mean, it's scary. And I've had, I can't tell you how many times I've had patients, um, you know, call the nurse advice line or send me a my chart message, freaking out about like even just things like the vitamin D drops we give to every baby, right? Like they're so incredibly hard to get one drop in your baby's mouth, and so like so many times, like oh, I gave them like ten drops or like way more than I was supposed to, and I know of course that that's not likely to cause harm, but again, calling poison control can really help reassure parents. It's so easy for them to do if they're in that situation when the doctor's office isn't open. Let's move to older children like teenagers. They may begin to take the initiative themselves and they'll be self-administering some common medications like for headaches, for example. How can parents really make sure that the teens succeed in this and that they, the teens themselves reduce the risk of errors? As the parent of two teens, I think a lot about this. So we have kids who use their over-the-counter medications that that I see in clinic on their own, uh, sometimes as early as age 11. But there are studies that show that only about half of preteens and teens actually know that the medications they're taking have a potential for harm if they take them wrong. So after you go over medication instructions with your teen at home, so this is for parents and caregivers, just make sure you go over the instructions with your teen. You can actually use the teach back and show back techniques that we just spoke about to confirm your teen's understanding. And then Really important in your discussion with them, be sure to reinforce to never share their over-the-counter or, of course, their prescription medicines with a friend, a sibling, or child they're babysitting, and to never use someone else's medicine. So tell them to read and follow the label every time they take a new medicine prescription or a refill, because things could change. Even if you think you know the medicine, check the label first, because labels and instructions can change and evolve. And tell them uh, why they should be using the dosing device that comes with the medicine, just really works well to explain the reasoning behind it. And then finally, store all medications out of sight and out of reach, especially if there are younger siblings at home. And then for your teen, add the poison help number into their phone contact list. Let them know it's there. And the number again is 1-800-222-1222. Let's talk a little bit also about once the medication is complete and if parents have extra prescription on hand or expired over-the-counter medication. I commonly get that if I buy medication at like the big box store, right? And I confess, like, I don't use it all. And like, you know, if it's like close to the expiration date and it's still working, I'll like, I'll like take it. You know, if it's like a year over, I generally like <laughs> need to dispose of it. But how do, how, what's a good way for, for parents to dispose of it? I know how I dispose of them, but I work in a hospital, so it's easier for me. We 
see parents and caregivers sometimes keep leftover medicines in their home even after they have expired so I actually see this pretty frequently a problem with that is that these meds can actually be confused with medications that the child is currently taking so right so you have two medications one that's sort of the active medication list that they take in one that's uh, something that they've discontinued it's really important to safely dispose of unused medications especially if they're things like opioids which have the potential for abuse and diversion so first of all uh, check the instructions that came with the medication frequently there are instructions included for safe ways to get rid of the medication some pharmacies have drop off kiosks for old or leftover medicine uh, there are some local law enforcement agencies that sponsor medicine take back programs or take back days and federal guidelines actually say that prescription or over the counter medications are not to be flushed down the toilet or poured down a sink unless the patient information material that came with it specifically states that it's safe to do so so if there are no disposable instru- disposal instructions on the drug label and no take back program in your area the meds can be thrown out in the household trash and just you know you kind of want to make it not attractive for someone to pick up from the household trash so before throwing out medications it's best to remove them from the original container mix them up with something yucky like loose coffee grounds dirt Cat litter. litter. Yeah, yeah, I just say kitty litter. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, I know that's litter. the grossest thing in my house. For yeah, sure. yeah, that's that's perfect for this job. So it's less appealing to kids or pets or people who may unintentionally go through trash looking for drugs. So to prevent the medicine from leaking out or breaking out of a garbage bag, it's you know you could put the medicine, um, you know, the mixture, your gross mixture, with another container in the trash, like a box you're already throwing away. Yeah, it's easy for me. I mean, I work in the hospital. I go there all the time. And in the lobby of our hospital at UC Davis Health, there's a there's a, a box there, one of those secure boxes, um, that it's easy enough for me to just drop stuff off and put them in the put them in the box. I yeah. didn't even know about that. So that yeah. is great. When to you know. walk in the lobby, it's on the right. Okay. Good. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I heard. Have heard about clinicians' offices that have uh, that will take back your expired medicines to dispose them off safely as well. But of course, you know that's not all offices. Right. So I have to admit one thing that always makes me cringe as a pediatrician. Although I can completely understand now that I have a, a child that's sick all the time, is when the family will come in to see me and they're like, "Oh, he felt warm," and you know he always gets ear infections. So I just started him on some of his brother's leftover amoxicillin. And I'm always like, no, do not do that. But can you specifically walk through why parents should avoid doing this? Yeah, yeah. I've seen parents save leftover antibiotics prescribed for themselves or for their children or for other children and give them to other kids or adults in their home without checking with their doctor. And that's problematic, not only from a safety standpoint, but of course, because of the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. So if a child is given a course of antibiotics for 10 days, the doctor truly means that they should take the antibiotic for the full 10 days. So the so if the exact amount is dispensed and the exact amount is taken, there really should not be any leftovers. And so clinicians prescribe specific antibiotics for specific infections at a dose meant for the child's weight, their age, their medical condition. So if you use leftover antibiotics for a sibling or a friend's child, you may end up giving the wrong medicine and cause harm, or it may not fully treat the child's illness because there may be insufficient medicine left, 
or if the medicine has expired, it could be less potent. Um, and of course, it's important to remember that many infections are caused by viruses and antibiotics do not kill viruses. So it's best to check with your, uh, your child's clinician before starting them on a prescription medicine that you happen to have access to at home. Dr. Sheikh, thank you so much for leading us in this important conversation today. Dr. Lena and I generally provide a summary at the end of each episode, but we're going to cheat this time and <laughs> just ask you to highlight three of your main take-home points for parents to reduce the risk of medication errors at home. So the first take-home point is to review your child's medication at their doctor's visit every single time you see your, your clinician. So your clinician and you can work together to make sure that they are being taken by your child the way they were intended to be. So you can bring your child's medication bottles, if they're using inhalers, bring the pump with you to your appointment to make sure that they're reviewed at every visit. Um, the second point to remember is to avoid using your household spoon to measure out liquid medicines. Use a standardized dosing tool such as a medicine dropper, medicine syringe, medicine cup, or a dosing spoon. Ideally, uh, the dosing tool that comes with the medicine. And the third point I'd like to leave you with is the importance of communication. Don't hold back on asking questions to make sure that you leave your medical visit with the information that you need in the language that you speak and in a way that works for your learning style, right? So you can bring, if, you, if you're a visual learner, bring in a writing pad, take notes on your phone. If you're an auditory learner, you know, I've actually had parents ask if they can audio tape a section of our visit where I've sort of delivered the counseling uh, for them to remember when they go home or to share with another caregiver. And so it's really important to make sure that you leave uh, with the information um, that you think you need, right? So this is especially critical if your child is very young or has a complex medical condition or use, uses multiple medications. That is so great. Thank you so much. And we will include tons of information and resources on our blog for parents as well. We would like to thank Dr. Sheikh for joining us on today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. And that reminds me of a joke. <laughs> All right. I'm glad. I'm excited to hear this one. What medication does a snake take before giving a speech? I don't know. An antihistamine. Not like, just like what Dr. Dean overdosed on. Right, exactly. Like we discussed earlier in the episode. Right, right. <laughs> a, a medication close to me. Yeah. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 